0: We come then to Mark 6, 45 to 52, thinking this evening of Christian discipleship and trials. We've thought of Christian discipleship and rejection. We've thought of Christian discipleship and we'll continue to think of aspects of that over the, the coming weeks. The historical sections of the Old and the New Testament have taught us that there will be trials in the life of the followers Of Jesus. We think of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, such a trial for that godly, old, and wise man. We think of Stephen being stoned as the first martyr within the Christian church for defending the gospel of Jesus. And we have followed in church history the trials of God's people in those ten eras or rounds of persecution by the Roman emperors in the first and second and third centuries after Christ. We have thought of the persecutions of the covenanters in the 16th and 17th century and the well-known events which we are familiar with And we have thought in our prayer times on Wednesday evenings of the ongoing persecution around the world in countries where the gospel is opposed and restricted. And and so we come with that knowledge, that conviction, that awareness that there are trials in the life of disciples of Jesus. And we come to consider this subject uh, through the prism uh, of this trial of the disciples in Mark six, forty five to fifty two. Now we reject the the liberal approach uh, to this story which asserts that uh, Jesus was walking on a sandbank just like Alexander the Great walking out to take the the, the city of Tyre seemed to be walking on water and those who admired and followed uh, Alexander the Great asserted that he walked on water to conquer that seemingly impregnable city of Tyre. But Jesus was walking on water. There was no sandbar underneath his feet. This was not a a perception which the disciples seemed to have themselves, but rather, as the text indicates, just as they were on the land on one occasion, so Jesus was on the water on another occasion. Land, in one instance, was upholding the bodies of the disciples. Water, on another instance was upholding the body of Jesus. It's a different miracle, but a similar miracle to the other storm recorded in chapter 4 of Mark. And perhaps there's a principle there. In the other instance, which we'll study in a few weeks' time, Jesus was with the disciples in the boat. And In this instance, Jesus is absent from the disciples in the boat. And perhaps this is the way it is within the life of the disciple of Jesus. There is a growing, a progressing, a developing in the faith and following of the disciples. As parents, we hold on to the the back of the seat of our children as they start to learn to cycle. But there comes a time when we let the seat go and and they're on their own with our watchful eye and care and near presence to them as they begin to to cycle. And in one instance then, Jesus is right there with them at hand in the boat in this instance. Are growing perhaps a little in their faith, and certainly in the tests that come to them when Jesus is absent from them, but watching over them. It is a loved story by the church and always has been. It has been the, the focus of the, the paintings of Christian artists over the centuries. It became a kind of emblem of the church. We have the burning bush now. The early church had the emblem, the painting, the insignia of a ship in the storm. This was the church in the presence of persecution. But, but Jesus was caring for his church in the storm. And so we too uh, love this story and bring it into our lives and know it well. And we apply it as the church has always done in its paintings and in its sermons to trials in the life of the disciples of Jesus. And there's three lessons that that we can grasp and lay hold of that lie on the surface of this tremendous miracle of Jesus that we can hold on to and seek to, to let sink from our head down into our hearts when when those hard times come to us. Our trials are not pointless. Our trials are not loveless. And our trials are not Christless. Let's think, first of all, that our trials are not pointless. We've noticed this before, and it's emphasized in, in verse number 45, that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. This wasn't their initiative. This wasn't their idea. They are not acting in disobedience to Christ. He is commanding them to get into this boat. It's His wisdom. It's His plan. It's His direction that they are following as they cross over that northern part of the Lake of Galilee and enter that headwind, which is going to exhaust them to the very point of death or trials are not pointless. He controls this whole scenario, this whole experience. It's his idea. He initiates this journey from one side of the Lake of Galilee to the other. We know the reasons why he does this. We argued that the 5,000 men, as verse 44 indicates, males, that they're not just there as, as casual observers of Jesus out in the desert. They are there to form an insurrection and make Jesus their leader, as John 6 indicates the parallel passage we referred to this morning in Acts 21 of 4,000 men out in the desert for an insurrection is reflected here in Mark chapter 6. So Jesus is, is, is saving his disciples from this false ideology, from this wrong understanding of the mission and identity of Jesus. He has not come to overthrow the Romans to to cause the Jewish nation to rise to its heights of power and prestige. Once again, he has come as the Savior. And so he sends the disciples across the sea to save them from this wrong ideology. William Lane says the tension of messianic excitement was dangerously in the air after the meal in the desert. Perhaps the crowds didn't know the source of their food when he fed the 5,000 men besides women and children. Perhaps Jesus had not revealed to them the cause of of this abundance of material for them. And it was to to prevent them from learning the source that he packs the disciples off on this ship across to the other side. This crowd was in enough enthusiasm without fueling that fire of insurrection any further. That Jesus takes these men who know the source of the loaves and the fishes and he packs them off on the ship to go to the other side. And We read in verse 46, when he had taken leave of them, that is of the disciples. He's put them into the ship. He's sent them over to the other side while he graciously, firmly sends off the 5,000 men and their associates back to their homes. All of this was orchestrated by Jesus. The storm, the wind doesn't come like in Jonah's case for their disobedience. This experience, this trial comes as in the case of Paul who was following the direction of Jesus and going to Rome. His direction, his command, his control of this whole situation was kind. It was loving. Their trial in the storm was was far less than their trial would have been if they'd adopted the false ideology of the insurrectionists. Our trials. Are not. Pointless. Sometimes the gangrenous foot. Has to be taken off. To save the leg. And Here Jesus. Sends the disciples away. From this dangerous. Ideology. Into the storm. To preserve them. And keep them. And refine them. Jesus controls our trials. There are no pointless trials in our lives. His love is so great for us that he will not allow his children to shed a needless tear. And it's therefore a question that we can ask in our trial, what is Jesus teaching me here? You remember Jacob shouting in agony, as Joseph is no longer at his side, as Benjamin is on the verge of being also taken away from him, all these things, he says, are against me. Losing Joseph, my beloved son, whom I've given the special coat to, losing Benjamin, my youngest son, whom I love dearly, this is all against me. But we know it was all for him. There was no pointless trial In that old saint's life. But God had this bigger picture. That he was working out. In Jacob's life. And experience. Have you been listening to Paul Ansel? As he's spoken of the brokenness of his heart. And the agony of his soul over this past fortnight. And this is what he was saying. This should not happen to us. We are good people. but he doesn't understand our Jesus. Because we can say there is no pointless trial in the life of the disciple of Jesus. For every trial, to the righteous, to the wicked, there is a reason, there is a plan. There's a sovereign Lord over all of this. James writes, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Perhaps the reason for trials in our life is to humble us as it was for Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps it is to refine us as it was for the readers of Peter's first letter. Perhaps it is to prevent us from from moral wrong as it was in the case of Abimelech in Genesis 20. Or perhaps it is to keep us from bad theology as it is in the case of the disciples here rescued from the false ideology of the 5,000 men Jesus sends them across the lake. These men and we Though we do not delight in trials, are far better men and women after them. Duncan Campbell, who was a a well-known and gifted and used preacher uh, in in Scotland in the 20th century, he was seriously injured in the First World War in France and he spent 13 months in Perth Royal Infirmary. Taken away from fighting for his king and country. Taken into this period of seclusion and isolation for 13 months. What a trial that was. The effects of which would last in his body and life for the rest of his days. And yet, in that 13 months in the infirmary, he was greatly used by God. In leading others to Christ. There is no pointless trial in the life of Christ's disciples. But secondly, and this moves us on from the logical, from the rational, from the intellectual to the emotional, there is no loveless trial, or there is our trials are not loveless. Alongside of that reason, that rationale that Jesus has, this purpose, this wisdom, that there's also his love, his emotion, his affection for us. This is evidenced in two ways in in this wonderful miracle. One is that he prayed for them, the other is that he saw them. He prayed for them, he was praying. And what was he praying about? Mark doesn't mention the prayer of Jesus very much. Luke does a lot more. but, But Mark mentions it on three times, chapter 135 here and in 1435. In each of these occasions, it's evening. In each of these occasions, Jesus goes alone. In each of these occasions, there's a crisis in Jesus' life. And so it is here. The crowds want him to be their political leader. There's hundreds, there's thousands urging him on, longing him to deviate from that sole role of saviour of sinners onto the the political agenda. Jesus gets alone to pray for strength and focus and grace to retain that single-mindedness to be the servant and sacrifice of the Lord. But alongside praying for himself, as, as, as Lane says, refusing the acclaim of the multitude, he gave himself to a long period of solitude in order to affirm his obedience to the Father. But alongside of praying for himself, he's praying for his disciples. Praying for their spiritual need to understand his true identity. Praying for their emotional need as they they face this mighty headwind in the sea. Praying for their physical needs as their muscles are burning and their bones are near breaking. He's praying for them, for every dimension of their being. Here they are. He has sent them away. He's alone, the text says, on the mountain in the evening. But he's with them. In his emotion, in his prayer, his love is surrounding these men in their need and in their trial and in their loneliness. Sending them away from him did not indicate a lack of love towards them. But his love for them in trial is evidenced in him seeing them in verse 48. He saw that they were making headway painfully. He saw the wind that was against them. He saw and imagined and entered into the experience of them on this boat, rowing against this powerful headwind, and recognized the pain that that would be in their bodies and souls at this very moment. As they engaged in extreme physical effort to bring their ship across to the other side. He looks on them. The term is used in verse 34 as he saw the multitudes coming to them as sheep without a shepherd. He looked on them with love and pity and compassion, entered into their needs and their wants. So it is here he sees them. He sees them with compassion and empathy and enters into their trial, their danger and their fears. This lake of Galilee it could be traversed even on a stormy time in six to eight hours. But here are the disciples, and it's twelve hours since they've set sail. And they are being tormented. There was a well known wind called the Shirkia, literally the shark, and it often started in the evening and was a great cause of apprehension for fishermen. And it seems to be a brand of of that type of wind that is against the disciples and preventing them for 12 hours at this point from getting to the other side. Verse 48 says, painfully. The word is literally torment. It was used of the agonies of the demon-possessed man in chapter 5, verse 7. Also used of the sufferings of those in hell in Revelation 14, verse 10. What an agony. What a torment. The mind of these men was in. Where is Jesus? He has sent us on this journey. Why has he not come to deliver us? The bodies of these men tormented. As they they row against this powerful headwind. And Jesus is seeing them. Understanding their agony. Entering into their circumstance. Remembering them in prayer. The strongest plank in the atheist's argument is the Christian God is a God of power. And a God of love. Why is there suffering in the world? People appeal to the suffering in Syria and Turkey and other such instances of suffering. And say if your Christian God is all powerful and all loving. Why then does he not prevent such a tragedy among humanity? How can he look on and see such agony? Here we are black and white, right before us. His disciples, tormented. And he's looking at them, watching them. But he's not emotionless. He's not indifferent to their agony. He's filled with love and compassion. He's praying for them. He's seeing them with pities, entering in to their, their excruciating agonies. Our trials are not loveless. Theologians have used this passage of Jesus on the mountain alone, looking out over the, the, the storm and the disciples to give us insight into the current intercessory work of Jesus. As Romans 8 says, he is at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for us. And just as he prayed for that small group of the New Testament church out in this storm, so Jesus in heaven looks down and prays for us in our agony and in our need. Sometimes disciples find prayer difficult in their life. In the presence of trial and, and agony, to concentrate with all, all the concerns and questions it, w- rumbling in their minds. that they, We find it hard sometimes to engage in prolonged times of prayer. And these disciples probably did. All their hands were to the pump. Every mind to get themselves through this excruciating headwind were focused on, on mere survival but Jesus was praying for them. And he had been there before. And this is the brilliant thing for us. He he had been in a storm before. He knew what the men were going through because he had been there before in in chapter 4. He knew about the powerful waves the ups and downs of the the small vessel, the, the, the propensity to fear and to doubt. And he enters into their fears and their doubts and their needs. And we have that assurance in our trial and in our life that Jesus has been tempted in all points like as we are. And as he intercedes for us in heaven, he does it from a place of knowledge, of experience. And he prays effectively and with empathy for us. Our trials are not loveless. And what a thing it could be for us if we could take a page out of his book and that you and I could pray for one another in the trials of our life. Maybe we've never experienced the same trial. We maybe never stood in the same shoes as the person being tried. But we've experienced something perhaps in the same region that they're going through. A young person might say, well, I've never experienced the loss of a loved one. But you have experienced loss. Perhaps you've lost a doll. You've lost a cup match. You've lost a precious item of clothing. You know the pain in some measure of loss and you can utilize that experience to pray for the loss someone else has which is deeper and fuller. Jesus saw them. Isn't that brilliant? No one else saw them. There's no one else there. The crowds, the 5,000 men, disappointed. It's not going to happen today. This insurrection, will have to come back to the drawing board and and make our plans again. They're they're heading off. They want to get a good night's sleep. They want to to get their supper. They want to sit down with their families. They're off to their villages and homes. No one else sees them. There's not a thought in the minds of the 5,000 men. I wonder where these disciples are. We, We saw them heading off in the boat there. I wonder how they're getting on. They never care for them. Jesus saw them. Perhaps in your life no one knows the agonies that you're going through. Or perhaps you've not found a listening ear for the troubles you're experiencing. But Jesus sees you. He knows. He enters into, he cares for you. Isn't this a, a strain that we find in the book of Psalms about God knowing our needs? Psalm 139, you have searched me and know me. Psalm 103, he knows our frame. Our trials are not loveless trials. Our trials are not pointless trials. And thirdly, our trials as disciples of Jesus are not Christless trials. And this is moving us on further, isn't it? This is beyond the logical, that there is a reason, that there is a purpose, that there is a plan. This is moving us on beyond the emotional, that he prays for us, that he sees us. This is moving it right on to the apex now. This is the personal. Our trials are not a Christless trial. He is with us in our trial. The phrase used in verse 47 on the, on the land and on the sea they, 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 they must be the same, wasn't they? He was alone on the land. They were out on the sea and Jesus comes to them in verse 49 walking on the sea. Here is this incredible Jesus leaving his time of prayer now, leaving the land, the mountain, and walking out supernaturally over the waves, out to his disciples in the boat. The Old Testament asserts that this is what God does. He walks on the water. Job 9, Psalm 77, Isaiah 43. God walks on. On the water. Here is Jesus once more showing his disciples who he is. The God described in the Old Testament, the God who has these unique supernatural abilities is among them and coming to them and with them in their trial and with us in our trial. He walks on the water out to them. He his identity and, and, and latching on to that great statement made by God to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3:14, "Ego, I may, I am Jehovah, the ever-present God. He walks like God. He talks like God. He is God. Our trials are not Christless. But, but you're saying, well, what well, <laughs> about this phrase here uh, in, in the passage that he meant to pass by them in verse 48? He meant to pass by them. What is that about? I'm sure you've thought about it and, and maybe have a brilliant answer that I'm not going to recite here. Well, it could be that's how it appeared to the disciples from their standpoint. It was as if he was going to miss them, he was going to pass by them. Or, as the text seems to indicate, this was intentional. It was part of his self-revelation. Added, to this Old Testament assertions of God walking on the water, there is those two occasions of Moses up the mountain and Elijah up the mountain when, when God came to them in a special way and we read in both instances that he passed by them. It was a, a theophany. Uh, an appearance of God. And, and perhaps Jesus has is, is latched on to that experience of Moses and Elijah in their hours of need. And, and he's replicating it now. He's passing by them. He's with them. He's glorious. He's almighty. He's the one to be trusted. He's the God of Elijah and the God of Moses. He's passing by them. He can't be fully understood or touched. Job 9 kind of gives us the, the best insight into this passage. Verses 8 and 11, I read them. God alone treads on the waves of the sea. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Job is describing a God who moves mountains, who shakes the earth, who obscures the sun, who arrays the heavens in splendor, who treads on the waves. He's a God who's inscrutable, a God who performs wonders that cannot be fathomed. This is our God, and he passes by me, Job says. He's beyond me. I cannot comprehend him. But Jesus does something more, doesn't he? He appears to be passing them by like this inscrutable God of Moses and Elijah and Job. But then he turns. He comes to the disciples. James Edwards explains, he intends, he intends to make the mysterious an enigmatic God of Job, visible and palpable as it had not been and could not have been the former generations. Lane comments, Jesus had no intention of simply passing by the disciples in a display of enigmatic glory. He walked on the water. To them to show them his love he came to where they were our trials are not pointless our trials are not loveless our trials are not Christless He is with us in our need, in our weakness, in our trouble. The poem Footsteps has been well known and loved and used by the Christian church for decades now. And what a poem it is, looking back over life, seeing those two footprints side by side and then at some points one footprint and then two footprints again and Asking Jesus, well, well, what happened when the one footprint appeared? Where did you go? Why did you leave me? And the answer coming, that's when I was carrying you. He comes to us. He's with us. In the very center of our trial. The Almighty Son of God. The one who can do anything. The one who calms the storm the one who loves us deeply, the one who can walk on water, the one with whom nothing is impossible, the one who tells us in that Old Testament echo and language, do not be afraid because I am with you. And such a knowledge and such a confidence and such an assurance for us should help us, should calm us, should take us through our trial. But it didn't for the disciples. Understandably, they were scared out of their wits. They thought this was some ghost that had appeared and the Talmud had this this belief that if you saw this white figure on the crest of a waves, immediately after that, your ship would sink. These men were terrified. This was the end. They'd seen the white figure in the waves and they were going down. The passage ends, rebuking the disciples for their hardened hearts. They had this knowledge in their mind. They had seen the loaves multiplied in the powerful hands of Jesus. They'd even seen him now walking on the water. But, but that knowledge they had up top wouldn't just sink down into their hearts. Our hearts were, were hard and, and unbelieving at that moment. And sometimes in our trial, we know the promises, but we can't just let it sink down in the comfort and peace that it should bring. If you're not yet a Christian, that knowledge that you have of Jesus, that knowledge that you have that we are not right with God because of our sin, that knowledge of heaven and hell that you know, that you believe, that you accept unquestionably has got to sink down from your head into your heart and bring sorrow and repentance and faith in Jesus, the Son of God who will be with his people right throughout this life and into the glorious life to come. So then our trials, they are not pointless. They are not loveless. They are not Christless.